thank you for listening to the Fractured Podcast. My name is Joel, and I'm the editor of Mixed Migration Hebdo, a weekly newsletter that compiles and curates the prior week's global news on migration and on contributing factors. Fractured is a collaboration between Mixed Migration Hebdo and Refocus Media Labs, a media development program founded by Doug Herman and Sonia Nanjik, who is also the co-host of Fractured. Today, I'm going to talk a bit about the displacement crisis taking place within and beyond Ukraine. By the end of March, over 4 million refugees had fled from Ukraine, just under 10% of the total population, and 10 million had been displaced overall. In other words, close to a quarter of all Ukrainians had fled their homes in less than six weeks of fighting. These are staggering numbers, but so far Europe has responded admirably. It's that response that I would like to talk about today. Before I go any further, this is a good place to mention that a couple of weeks ago, I published an article in the New Humanitarian discussing this particular crisis, how the EU has responded, how the EU's response to the crisis contrasts with its response to prior displacement crises, and how the EU's response to this crisis could inform its response to future crises. I'm recording this podcast as a kind of companion piece to that article. If you haven't read it yet, I encourage you to find it and I'll post a link to it in the show notes. If you have read the article, I hope you find this pod to be a useful compliment. About a month ago, on March 4, the EU activated the Temporary Protection Directive, allowing refugees from Ukraine to obtain three-year residency permits, automatically upon arrival, to any EU country of their choice. The Temporary Protection Directive is a remarkably generous instrument. It's also night and day in comparison to what refugees usually encounter when they arrive in the EU. Now, there are a few layers to this that we need to peel back in order to explain why this is such a big deal. I'll do my best to peel them back without getting too technical. The first thing to acknowledge here is that Ukrainians already had visa-free access to the EU. I won't get into this here. I talked about it in the first episode of Fractured, so you can circle back to that for details. What's important here is to recognize that the EU didn't open any gates to Ukrainian refugees. The gates were already open. What the EU did was not just give them access to EU soil, but rather to extend them medium to long-term protection. Normally, a Ukrainian person arriving in an EU country would only be allowed to sojourn there for up to three months. Sheer he could visit, but not establish residency, get a job, or apply for public benefits. The Temporary Protection Directive not only stretched the length of time they were allowed to visit from three months to three years, but it also gives Ukrainian access to the same rights and benefits that other EU nationals enjoy. For example, the right to work, the right to use services such as public schools or public health care, the right to apply for welfare, or to rent and buy property on the same terms as a local person. Now, in terms of this final outcome, temporary protection is actually fairly similar to refugee status, although most European countries offer asylum for five years, not three. The difference between obtaining temporary protection and asylum isn't the end game, but rather the process. Refugee status, as issued in EU countries, is constitutive. This means that a refugee when she or he arrives at a country of asylum, has to demonstrate they are a refugee. They have to appeal to the authorities of that country, 
demonstrate a reasonable fear of persecution if returned to their country of origin, and then wait for the host country's authorities to make a decision, either conferring or denying asylum. Temporary protection, on the other hand, is a declarative status. This means that any Ukrainian who arrives in Europe and can demonstrate that they were in Ukraine as of February 24, when the Russian invasion began, is automatically assumed to need protection, and automatically granted the rights and benefits of the Temporary Protection Directive. Imagine the stress of preparing an asylum claim. You might be asked to present documents to back up your claim, but you don't have access to these documents because you weren't able to take them when you fled. You might be put through a long and complex interview where any mistake you make could make your asylum claim suspicious. You might struggle to find a lawyer to help you prepare your petition. You might nail your interview, answering every single question perfectly well, but in your native language, and then end up learning that the translator who facilitated your interview made mistakes, which are now part of your record. You might wait for months before you receive a decision, not knowing if you'll be received by the country where you arrived or deported. You might spend those months in a camp. You might run out of money. You might get a negative decision and need to file an appeal. These risks are just the risks of applying for refugee status. If you're applying for refugee status in Europe, there are additional barriers you would need to cross, which we'll get into later. All of these barriers, the ones we've discussed and the ones we haven't discussed yet, have come down for Ukrainians. It's only right that they should be taken down, and I couldn't have been prouder to be European when I read the final text of the Temporary Protection Directive as approved by the EU on March 4. Ukrainians are fleeing unprovoked aggression, indiscriminate targeting, and deliberate attacks on civilians. By every measure, they deserve the blanket protection that the EU has extended to them. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, however, didn't take place in isolation. Part of what makes the EU's generosity toward displaced Ukrainians so remarkable is how much it contrasts with how the EU has been treating refugees from other parts of the world over the last two decades. As much as the Temporary Protection Directive makes me proud to be European, the way that Syrians and Afghans and Congolese refugees are treated makes me feel incredibly ashamed, and that's what I'd like to get into through the rest of this podcast. To do this right, I need to throw a bit more vocabulary at you. The first concept that I need to introduce is the concept of mixed migration. In the context of refugee law, mixed migration happens when groups of foreign nationals, which includes some refugees fleeing persecution and other non-refugees fleeing poverty or seeking economic opportunity, arrive in a third country at the same time. International refugee law as it currently exists is only meant to protect those fleeing persecution. It has nothing to offer for people fleeing crushing poverty, no matter how tragic. This means that when a country faces mixed migration arrivals, that country will need to sort the group, work out who is a bona fide refugee who needs protection and who is a non-refugee migrant. This is a complex process. As we covered before, Refugees don't always arrive in a country of asylum with documentary proof of their persecution, so it takes a lot of personnel, a lot of time, to work out if each petition for refugee status is credible. This process is, by nature, emotional, and a person fleeing crushing poverty may have a very reasonable fear that their life is at risk if they are sent back to that crushing poverty. 
However, crushing poverty is not covered as grounds for protection under the Refugee Convention, and as a result, the receiving country has no obligation to receive non-refugee migrants. Let's be clear, I'm not endorsing this distinction, I'm just explaining it. Let's use an example. Imagine that two individuals arrive in Italy after transiting through Libya. A dissident who exposed official corruption and is now being pursued by authorities in his country of origin, and a poor farmer whose crops and livestock were wiped out by a flood. Technically, as we discovered, only the dissident has a right to asylum, because this dissident is in imminent danger of persecution by capricious and arbitrary officials and could end up imprisoned, abused, or killed if sent back to his country of origin. The farmer, on the other hand, is poor, but not in immediate danger. Both have left because they had acute needs, but under refugee law, Italy has an obligation to offer asylum only to the dissident. Now, let's imagine that, on their way to Italy, both suffered physical abuse from smugglers in Libya and arrive in Italy with signs of trauma. When approached by asylum officers in Italy, the farmer might be tempted to say that the scars were inflicted not by smugglers in Libya, but rather by authorities in his country of origin. The farmer might be tempted to come up with an alternative story, and instead of telling Italian asylum officers that he was a poor farmer who kept his head low, stayed away from politics, but couldn't manage to feed his family, he might say that he was also a dissident. Since neither of our two arrivals have documents to back up their story, the Italian asylum officer will need to rely mostly on the stories they're told. Now multiply this situation by hundreds, perhaps thousands of daily arrivals. This is why mixed migration flows are difficult to manage, because receiving states need to come up with a system to identify who is arriving and why and what to do with them. And that system needs to be fast because the arrivals are constant, it needs to be fair because the stakes are high, and it needs to be discerning because states need to be careful with whom they offer asylum. Let's develop our example a little bit further and imagine that our farmer tells a convincing story and is offered asylum, and as a result, both him and the dissident are now granted refugee status. Personally, I'm all for the farmer getting a chance at a better life. No harm, no foul. But, in strictly legal terms, this outcome is still a miscarriage of justice. Now let's imagine that the farmer tells a convincing story, but meanwhile the dissident gets nervous, makes a mistake in his interview, contradicts himself, and as a result, the farmer is granted refugee status while the dissident is deported back to his country of origin. Now we've got foul and harm. States have to be judicious in granting refugee status in order to preserve the institution of asylum. In our example, a poor farmer fled crushing poverty and told a lie to not be returned to that crushing poverty. In other instances, however, human rights abusers have fled their country and gotten refugee status elsewhere. Germany recently prosecuted a Syrian refugee after discovering that, back in Syria, he had been a prison guard and a torturer. Now, I would love for refugee law to be more generous and to protect our poor farmer as well as our dissident. I would not love it, however, if refugee law was so generous that abusers could easily slip through the cracks, obtain refugee status, and avoid accountability for their misdeeds. 
The challenge then becomes, how do you create a system that is discerning enough to protect our dissident while being judicious enough to prevent an abuser from gaming the system while also being fair to our impoverished farmer? If this feels complex, we're just scratching the surface. States also have security imperatives that they must be mindful of when they receive mixed migration flows. Several of the attackers in the November 2015 terrorist attack in Paris had transited through Greece, pretending to be refugees. Now, is it fair to close the gates to thousands of refugees because just one might be a terrorist? Of course not. But, by the same token, it's naive to think that states won't want to guard their borders from security threats. Before we go any further, I need to clarify. I really don't mean to suggest that states facing mixed migration flows should only help the refugees that they identify among the arrivals and deport everyone else. But I also don't think that giving refugee status to everyone is a solution. Ideally, well-designed migration policies implemented in good faith would, could, and should create solutions for everyone. Refugee status for those fleeing persecution, work permits or student visas, or development aid at home for those fleeing poverty. How humanitarianism and development intersect is a bigger debate that this podcast episode cannot cover. All I want to lay out is that there are good reasons why states facing mixed migration flows need to make an effort to verify who is arriving and respond accordingly. Now, things get a bit more complex when mixed migration flows arrive in Europe because of the EU. The EU is a bit of a chameleon that sometimes looks like a unified entity and other times looks like 27 cats in need of herding. And I'm spelling that H-E-R-D and not any other way. To understand how Europe deals with mixed migration flows under the umbrella of the EU, we need to go back in time a bit to the early 1990s when the Schengen Zone was created. The Schengen Zone is one of the greatest achievements of the EU. It allows free movement between most of its member states. If you drove in any direction from the town of Schengen in Luxembourg, where the treaty was initially signed, within an hour at most, you would be in a different country, and you might not even have noticed that you had crossed a border. Schengen makes it possible for a Slovene to study in France, get a job in Germany, but commute every day from the Netherlands because rent is cheaper over the border, and vacation in Spain, without having to use her passport. However, allowing free movement between EU countries requires some adjustments. It's important, for example, for EU countries to cooperate on law enforcement and make sure that criminals can't evade authorities by skipping over an unguarded border. Alongside the Schengen Zone, in the 1990s the EU proclaimed the Common European Asylum System. To adapt the national systems that EU states use to adjudicate asylum claims with the free movement zone created by the Schengen Treaty. Even today, 20 years after the proclamation of the Common European Asylum System, the EU still doesn't have a single unified system for asylum. Instead, each country operates its own asylum system, accountable to domestic leaders rather than to EU institutions. When EU leaders set up the Schengen Zone, they saw two possible dilemmas regarding asylum seeker arrivals. The first is that an asylum seeker might arrive in France file a petition for refugee status, but then realize that Germany's asylum system is more generous, and undertake a secondary movement to file a parallel asylum petition in Germany. The term of art for this is called forum shopping. 
This would mean that there are now two asylum services performing the same complex, labor-intensive, and time-consuming process at the same time for only one petitioner. Our asylum seeker might also want to visit a few countries before deciding where to apply for asylum, and end up pinballing around Europe without a defined legal status, and the term of art for this is called orbiting. Now, I'm all for asylum seekers maximizing their chances of a positive outcome, but there are also reasons for Europe to try to prevent forum shopping and orbiting. Secondary movements can be dangerous and leave asylum seekers vulnerable to geography and to human exploitation. And it also doesn't make sense for EU countries to double the workload of adjudicating a single person's asylum case. After all, if there are two caseworkers at work, one in France and one in Germany, it's only fair that they use their time and resources to review two different people's asylum petitions, rather than both reviewing the same person's. Now, a logical thinker might suggest that maybe the EU should centralize processing asylum claims so that there's just one agency reviewing asylum petitions all across Europe, and it's not possible to forum shop or to orbit. However, this is the EU we're talking about. And the EU's MO is not to impose rules from the top, but rather to induce member states to standardize their own rules and create uniformity. It's not necessarily effective, but EU states are jealous of their sovereignty and not usually wild about giving up state power to the EU. For better or worse, as of April 2022, it's inconceivable that Italy or Poland or Sweden would give up the right to adjudicate asylum claims for itself and hand that power over to an EU agency. So, 27 parallel asylum systems may not be the most intuitive way to do things, but it's how things are done in the EU. As we'll see through the rest of this pod, a lot of the problems with how Europe manages mixed migration have as much to do with path dependency as with any other factor. So, if you can't centralize all asylum processing into one central authority, then how do you prevent forum shopping or orbiting? Well, since the early 90s, the EU has used the first country principle. The first country principle, which is a key component of the Dublin regulation, makes it so that, in all but a few exceptions, asylum seekers are required to petition for asylum in their first country of arrival in the EU. If a German-speaking asylum seeker arrives in Italy, the first country principle means that they must apply for asylum in Italy. If they try to relocate to Austria or to Germany to take advantage of their language skills, the Dublin regulation allows Austrian or German authorities to send this person back to Italy to apply for asylum there. This may sound harsh for our German-speaking asylum seeker, but the idea here is to protect the overall integrity of the common European asylum system against the perceived threat of secondary movements. The problem with the first country principle is that it's a blunt tool that seeds the very problem it means to solve. The first country principle is problematic for European states. It ensures that countries at Europe's southern rim facing land and sea borders with North Africa and Turkey and consistently receiving more irregular arrivals end up stuck with a disproportionate share of asylum claims. The first country principle is also problematic for asylum seekers. It binds them to some of Europe's weakest economies and forces them into difficult choices between living in hardship in their country of arrival 
or prolonging their precariousness and taking huge risks attempting a secondary movement to another EU country. The first country principle is also problematic for these secondary destination countries, which face their own dilemma when they receive secondary movements. Under the Dublin Regulation, they have the right to send these secondary arrivals back to their first country of arrival. However, that first country of arrival might refuse the request, or it might drag its feet in honoring it. The second country might also override the Dublin Regulation and admit secondary asylum claims. But this might encourage more asylum seekers to undertake secondary movements and to keep breaking the rules in place. Just last month, Germany announced that it had a backlog of 41,000 asylum petitions, mainly from Afghan applicants who had come through Greece, obtained asylum there, and then moved on to Germany and filed new petitions. Now, personally, I'm all for Afghan refugees deciding that they don't want to live in poverty in Greece and moving to Germany to try again. But I also think it's a poor use of resources for the German asylum system to redo the work that the Greek asylum system has already done when there are other refugees around the world that are getting help neither from Germany nor from Greece. Over the years, EU leaders have debated different ideas to replace the first country principle. Multiple proposals have come and gone for an automatic relocation mechanism, which would distribute asylum seekers more fairly across the bloc. In September 2015, when the Syrian refugee crisis reached Europe, the EU approved a mechanism to relocate 120,000 asylum seekers from Greece and Italy to the rest of Europe. Only about 33,000, however, were ever relocated. Generally, while Southern European countries are desperate to get rid of the first country principle, the rest of Europe has always stood firm against loosening it, even just a little bit. Again, path dependency. The first country principle stays in place not because it's good policy, but because EU states can't seem to agree on an alternative, and so they kick the can down the road and stretch out the unsustainable status quo. Given that it hasn't been able to replace the first country principle, and come up with a system to redistribute asylum seekers more fairly across Europe, the EU instead has doubled down on externalizing and deterring migration. In 2015, it issued the hotspot policy, creating zones of exception, such as Greece's Aegean Islands, where asylum seekers would be confined while their asylum claims were reviewed. Then, it introduced admissibility requirements, which require that asylum seekers prove they were unsafe in their last country of transit to have their asylum claims admitted before they're allowed to prove that they felt unsafe in their country of origin and have their asylum claims adjudicated. In 2015 and 2017, the EU signed border control deals with Turkey and Libya, which have led to the deportation of over 150,000 Syrians from Turkey to Syria and to the horrific abuse of tens of thousands of asylum seekers from all over Africa in Libya. Over the last five years, illegal pushbacks which we discussed in episode 3 of Fractured, have become a systematic and routine border control mechanism at Europe's external borders. Now, let's backtrack a bit. The reasoning I used earlier to explain the first country principle, and to explain the reason why states should be judicious in evaluating asylum claims, is that we want to keep national asylum systems uncluttered, so that they retain the capacity to process newly arriving asylum claims. 
the EU has put rules in place to prevent forum shopping and orbiting, which, although they're imperfect, reduce the amount of repetition across EU asylum systems, again, keeping these systems uncluttered. However, EU countries often don't use that spare capacity to receive more refugees. Throughout this podcast, I've been giving you a good-faith reading of why these rules are in place. But don't think for a second that I believe EU countries are using these rules in good faith. For the most part, they're not. And that's the last point I want to make about the common European asylum system before we wrap up today. Earlier in this podcast, I used the example of a poor farmer who makes up a backstory to obtain refugee status when, theoretically, he isn't entitled to it. Technically, this poor farmer defrauded the asylum system and indirectly weakened it. I've said throughout the pod, I have every sympathy for this impoverished farmer, and I would love to live in a world where he doesn't need to make up a backstory and game the asylum system to provide for his family. But there's another bit that's missing. I've used this example because I wanted to explain how European states perceive threats to the common European asylum system from their perspective as states. And what's worth considering is that just because states perceive mixed migration and fraud as a threat to their asylum systems doesn't necessarily make mixed migration and individualized fraud the only threats or the gravest threats facing their asylum systems. Again, a poor farmer lying during his interview because he wants a chance to work hard in Europe and keep his family alive may constitute fraud in a purely legal reading, but it doesn't threaten Europe's well-being as a whole. The reason I say this is that in episode 3 of Fractured, we discuss pushbacks, one of the many measures taken by EU states in response to the perceived threat of mixed migration. At a purely legal level, Pushbacks are just as fraudulent and just as unlawful as our farmer's fake backstory. At a material level, however, pushbacks are much more harmful. When the EU talks about threats to its asylum systems, it acts as if these threats can only ever come from beyond, in the form of fraudulent asylum petitions by non-refugee migrants. I firmly believe, however, and I'm far from alone in believing this, that the greatest threat to the EU's asylum system comes not from beyond Europe, but from within. Europe has gone to insane lengths to protect its asylum system from contrived threats. European migration policies, rather than engage with the problems of global inequity and displacement, engage in wild overcompensation for perceived and exaggerated threats. There are tens of thousands of bona fide refugees stuck in camps in Greece, tens of thousands more suffering horrific abuse in Libya and we'll never know how many have drowned in the Mediterranean and in the Atlantic because the EU's fear of mixed migration is blown out of proportion. The activation of the Temporary Protection Directive on March 4, again, allowing Ukrainian refugees to receive three-year residency permits automatically and to choose their country of residence, is remarkable because it simply bypasses all of the issues we've discussed until now and replaces them with the most generous possible option, even if the EU had wanted to try to distinguish between dissidents and poor farmers among arriving Ukrainians, it wouldn't have been able to review all of their asylum cases fast enough to keep up with arrivals. And even if the EU had wanted to prevent Ukrainians from forum shopping and orbiting, after two decades of trying to come up with an alternative to the first country principle, it had no alternative. 
So instead, they let Ukrainians choose and hope that whatever inefficiencies this might lead to, these would be less difficult to manage than the inefficiencies of trying to make that decision for them. The contrast between the barriers erected before Syrian, Afghan, or Congolese asylum seekers and the facilities provided to Ukrainians comes down to this. Europe seems to have collectively decided that it trusts Ukrainians to engage with these reduced barriers in good faith, a trust which it only partially extended in 2015 and quickly withdrew to refugees from Syria and a few other countries. There is an elephant in the room that I haven't acknowledged yet in this podcast because I wanted to focus on the mechanics of how EU migration policy has been made and kept in place. I mentioned earlier that the enduring weakness of the common European asylum system was the result of path dependency. The common European asylum system was not fit for purpose when Ukraine was invaded, and the fact that the EU changed the system for Ukrainians demonstrates that the EU is capable of learning from past mistakes. However, that it made this change now, and not in 2015 when the Syrian refugee crisis reached Europe, or last August when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, forces us to acknowledge the elephant in the room, racism. Why is it that the prospect of mixed migration from Africa, the Middle East, or Central Asia scares us to the point of violating EU values and principles in the name of border control? but that we're willing to throw every caution to the wind when displacement shifts to Ukraine. It's impossible to answer this question without reflecting on inherent and institutional racism. Now, I don't mean to avoid diving deeper into this reflection, but it's one that I would rather leave to others who have more expertise than I do on racism as a sociological construct, and I'll leave some articles speaking to this in the show notes. But, If we want to ensure that what we learn from this crisis outlasts this crisis, we need to consider not just the institutional reasons for the weakness of the common European asylum system, but also the sociological reasons. We need to make sure that the same logic that drove the EU to dramatically loosen the rules facing Ukrainians is applied toward loosening the rules facing Afghans and Syrians, and refugees from other countries when those refugees arrive to Europe fleeing similar violence to that which Ukrainians are currently fleeing. The EU has shown that it is an institutional that is capable of learning from past mistakes. It still has a long way to go to show that it is not an inherently racist institution. Thank you for listening to the Fractured Podcast. Fractured is a collaboration between Refocus Media Labs and Mixed Migration Ibdal. Thank you to my co-host, Sonia Nanjik, and thank you to Sonia and to Doug Herman for producing this episode. I'm your host, Joel Hernandez, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you again.